0: All right, are we live? We're live on call-in. All right, we're gonna go live on the pod and on YouTube. The links are in this call-in room if you wanna watch the YouTube or go to anchor.fm forward slash JSK. All right, here we go. Six, five, four, three, two, one, bingo. We're back to in case you forgot, we're live. We should be live. We're looking into another crisis because this world is in a constant state of crisis, it seems. And this one is one you may not know about because of censors and just information on population growth and all that stuff. But China, according to, and I'm holding it in my hand if you're not watching, if you're just listening, The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio, which I highly suggest everyone reads. The changing world order says that China, China, like Trump says, China, the virus came from China, China is going to overtake the world and the United States in being the new global power of the future. But on this podcast, we think... That when people say that anything that defies that logic is conspiracy, that it requires due diligence, research, and I want to share what I found with you. China right now is having major protests, and I'm going to share two specific videos, and then we're going to go over a few articles that explain what's going on, but there are 86 cities across China where there are major protests that they are trying to censor, and they are also sending people to these protests that are not in uniform to beat up the protesters. And because people in China have been paying for a house that was being built for them to live in that is not yet built, and they are incomplete. And there's a $9.2 trillion debt crisis that's way worse than what happened in 2008 in the US, which is looming over. So they might never be completed, but yet they've been paying for these houses for when they do complete, they are boycotting paying their mortgages. And the Chinese government, the CCP has frozen the people's bank accounts, and they cannot withdraw all of their money. Look it up. You think we're lying? As you know on this pod, we foreshadow the truth, we do not lie. So people are protesting and they're sending, the government is sending people to beat these people up. But the housing crisis is the second major event that is happening in China. And it is a distant second. Now, I know you feel with the energy in the world that everything is a crisis and it's all happening at once. And this world is just a chaotic mess. First of all, that's an intentional thing done by the new world order of Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum. They want things to be chaotic, put you in a state of fear, force you to make irrational decisions. And then all of a sudden you're being ruled under tyranny. Okay, that's intentional. But th- there's other crises that just so happen to be going on at the same time that is compounding that, that maybe was not intentional, or actually, I would say, was not thought through enough. Like, for example, the one child policy that China has enacted for the past 40 years. And now they are facing a societal collapse because of population. So, before I even go further with this monologue, Why don't you listen or watch? This is from uh, Breaking Points. Very good um, news source, you know, unlike, uh, you know, those mainstream ones that nobody's watching anymore, but whatever. This is Peter Zion. He's a uh, global macroeconomic consultant. I just finished his book, which is phenomenal and also would put in a as required reading with the changing world order. And then the most important one, and if we have time at the end, I'm going to read an excerpt from The Sovereign Individual, which I'm holding up, which was written in 1997. Although it seems like when you read it, it was written in 2020. Amazing book. It is the future. I believe it's, like a, it's going to be known as probably the best book ever written. This is Peter Zihan His book is called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And it is extremely good. And if we can get Ray Dalio and Peter Zion on a stage to discuss and debate, I think we can all learn a bunch because they're saying totally different things and they both make sense. It's bonkers. So this is from breaking points. This is just, just because we're focusing on China today and their population collapse and their housing market collapse and just the chaos. They have tanks now guarding the banks. Think about that. They got tanks guarding the banks, not protecting the people, guarding the banks. Kind of sounds like the U.S., you know, back in 2008. Didn't go that far, but, you know, we protected the banks more than the everyday person. Obama. Listen, we're apolitical. Don't forget that. We don't care who the president is. We don't like them. We like the apolitical crowd. And if you're listening to this, you are most likely apolitical. So here we go. Take a listen or watch if you're, you can go to the YouTube channel It's called The Ownership Economy or you can go listen to the podcast and that is anchor.fm forward slash JSK, which stands for Jonathan Scott Kogan. So this is about China. This is Peter Zaihan, very smart guy. His book is, and that's what this is from. He's promoting his book. The end of the world is just the beginning and they ask him to discuss China. China a little more. And everyone thinks China is the big global threat that's going to take over the world. After you listen to this, let's see if it expands the mind. That's what we try and do on this channel. We want to expand the mind. So without further ado. Here we go.
1: Talk a little bit more about China because it's another part that very much goes against conventional wisdom. A lot of your thinking does. But, you know, the counter case is they've got a massive population. They've been very clever about Belt and Road Initiative. They've been down securing mineral deposits in Congo and elsewhere so that they could be ahead of the game in terms of the Green Revolution um, and that they are the U.S.'s main geopolitical competitor. Um, Obviously, much of our industrial capacity went to China and they have all the factory towns now. So what's wrong with that analysis? almost everything. <laughs> so uh, let's start with the demographic picture, since we've already kind of established that. Uh, the one-child policy has been in place for 40 years, and that means that the Chinese are running out of 30-year-olds. That's just how math works. Uh, anyone who suggests that the Chinese think long-term or are good at math really needs to take a closer look at their system. Uh, also, uh, with the more recent census data that has come out, they, they are now admitting grudgingly that they've overcounted their population by in excess of 100 Chinese system, as of two years ago, before this new census data had come out, they were already the fastest aging and fastest demographically collapsing country in human history. And now with the new data, it suggests that the Chinese population will be less than half of its current size as soon as 2050. So just from a demographic point of view, this is the last decade of China as a unified nation state. They're they're a dead man walking. Um, Let's go beyond that. Okay, one belt, one road. This is a uh, an outcome of something the Chinese do with their financial system. So we give the Fed a lot of crack, a crap for uh, monetizing and printing currency and all that good stuff. And on average, we, we do print a substantial amount. But the U.S. dollar is used as the lubricant for the world's largest economy. Uh, we have another 20-odd currencies in the wider
2: world that are linked to it and it is the sole currency for international trade and
1: the primary currency in terms of store of value. As such, the American increase in the money supply actually broadly correlates with those other factors combined. So do we play a little fast and loose with the rules? Sure. Will we pay for that down the road, probably. But the Chinese, which is not, the Chinese Yuan is either the store of value nor the currency of exchange. And yet, the Chinese in any given month print two to five times as much currency as we do. Their overall money supply is over twice what ours is, and it's not internationally exchanged at all. Hmm. They use that money to lubricate their systems to force capital into any company that might be able to employ people. So, for us, the money supply is primarily an economic issue. For them, it's a political one, and it's treated appropriately. And that means that the Chinese are brimming with huge volumes of liquidity. And if you're someone in the know in China and you have access to that, it's a gold mine because if you can get that
2: currency out and exchange it for something else, anything else, even if the price is
1: ridiculous, that means you've gotten some capital flight out and you have your rainy day fund.
0: Mm.
1: That's exactly what One Belt, One Road is on a global basis. Whenever you see the Chinese bidding $8 billion for something that's only worth $2 billion, that is not a sign of national strength. That is a sign of a corrupt bureaucrat who is establishing his nest egg. And they've now done that on a global basis. Now, there's lots of other impacts from this over-financialization, this hyper-financialization system. But overall, it does mean that each individual Chinese company of size could not survive in the global environment unless that money keeps going coming. Other countries have tried various versions of this. Japan probably is at the top of that list. They're the ones who kind of designed the model. But eventually you have sufficient exposure that you can't compete and you start going down at Japanese style economic malaise that in this case has lasted 30, 35 years already.
2: And the Chinese or the Japanese economy today is about the same size that it was in 1994 before the decline really got going. That is the best case scenario for the future of China,
1: a slow, long stagnation, but there's a lot of reasons to expect it to be a
2: lot worse. Wow. This is really fascinating. This is why I love reading your books and why I think everybody should go.
0: Unbelievable. So that there's a lot more on that. I just wanted to play a short excerpt just so, just to start the thinking now, simultaneously the housing crisis. But before we get to that, I want to go through a New York Times article just real quick. Um, cause there's something important in it and it's about China's population. So it's called China's looming crisis, a shrinking population. And it's a great article. Again, all the info is in, uh, the show notes, uh, as always. And, uh, Basically, a report issued this month by the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences is the latest recognition that while China's notorious one-child policy may have achieved its original aim of slowing population growth, it has also created new challenges for the government. And I wasn't going to continue reading this part, but I'm going to read this one more paragraph, which is a decline in the birth rate and an increase in life expectancy means... There will be soon there will soon be too few workers able to support an enormous and aging population the academy warned the academy estimated the contraction would begin in 2027 though others believe it would come sooner or has already begun here's the important takeaway from this article the the amount of children that are in school or enrolling in a school have been massively dropping and the amount of births have been dropping, okay? And I've highlighted this one part and it says this, quote, on Friday, the National Bureau of Statistics announced that in 2019, the total number of births fell for the third year to 14.6 million. The fertility rate required to maintain population levels is 2.1 children per woman, a figure known as quote, replacement level fertility. Okay, so when you hear replacement levels, that is the amount of children required per woman to keep the population as it is, to replace the old people with young people. 2.1 is that number. In this research from the New York Times says, The fertility rates in many advanced economies have fallen as their societies have become wealthier and older. That's a common pattern that happens. The more wealthier um, your society gets, the more complacent people get, um, and then the less kids they have. And that's a continual uh, pattern that leads to a lower replacement theory, or you don't even have enough fertility to replace your population, which in China, China's fertility rate has officially fallen to 1.6 children per woman, but even that number is disputed, okay? So we know that their replacement fertility rate is below the replacement fertility rate required to maintain or grow your population, and that is from the one-child policy that has been enacted since 40 years ago, since the 1980s, it's been a long time. So even if they reverse course now, they are so behind on the amount of young people they have and so overrepresented in the older demographic, which by the way, the older you get, that means the less output or productivity you can actually do like working in a, because you're old and you actually need more government services and you like are retired And so you actually need more money to spend on those people, like fixed incomes from the government or like in here in the U S like social security. So it's, it costs more. And usually when you have a younger population, like the millennials in the U S you can support that expenditure In China, they don't have the millennials. They don't have a gigantic young population. So I want to go to this Brookings uh, Institute report. Um, which really just nails it, okay? It's called China's population destiny, the looming crisis. And this isn't, again, we're not even in, we haven't gotten to the housing crisis yet, which is happening simultaneously. So if you scroll down a little bit, or a lot of it, (laughs) I'll start reading now, here we go. China's demographic future is declining fertility. For nearly two decades, the average number of children a couple is expected to produce has been less than two, recently falling as low as approximately one and a half. Such a number is below the replacement level, remember replacement level, which is the level required for a population to maintain its size in the long run. China's low fertility, however, is a fact that has been established as real only relatively recently in part because of problems associated with deterioration in the country's birth registration and statistical data collection system, and in part because of the government's reluctance to acknowledge declining fertility. The current current period of fertility decline began quietly and remained unnoticed for almost a decade, which puts them even further behind. When the first signs that fertility had dropped below the replacement level were reported in the early 1990s, they were quickly dismissed in the context of what was believed to be widespread underreporting of births. By the turn of the 21st century, China's demographic transition could no longer be doubted. Today, the national fertility level is around 1.5 and possibly lower. Knowing how they handle their statistics and data that they share with the world, they usually overestimate or underestimate based on whatever's better for that metric. So It's around 1.5 and possibly lower. In the country's more developed regions, fertility has been even lower for more than a decade, barely above one child per couple, a level that rivals the lowest fertility rates in the world, which stays on par with the more wealthy uh, a society is, the less children they usually have. The ripple effects of fertility decline have begun to emerge everywhere in China these days. In 1995, listen to this. In 1995, primary schools nationwide enrolled 25.3 million new students. In, by 2008, that number had shrunk by one-third to only 16.7 million. In 1990, China had over 750,000 primary schools. By 2008, due to the combined effects of fertility decline and educational reforms, the number of primary schools nationwide had fallen to about 3 100,000. In a country where getting into a university has always been a matter of intense competition and anxiety, the number of applicants to universities has begun to decline in the past couple of years. The challenges posed by these demographic changes will be more daunting in China than in other countries that have experienced mortality and fertility declines. The reason for this does not lie in the size of China's population, but in the speed with which the People's Republic has completed its transition from high to low birth and death rates. China has achieved in 50 years increasing life expectancy from the 40s to over 70. That's a crazy, that's unbelievable. What What it took many European countries a century to accomplish. In 2000, when the ratio of income levels in the United States and China was still about 10 to 1, female life expectancy in China was only about five years below that of the United States, 75 versus 80. China, in other words, completed its mortality decline transition while per capita income was still at a very low level. Last last part here. Major fertility reduction in China took even less time. In just one decade, from 1970 to 1980, the total fertility rate, the TFR, total fertility rate, was more than halved from 5.8 to 2.3, a record unmatched elsewhere. Total fertility rate extrapolates an average woman's fertility over her lifetime from a society's fertility rate in a given year. In contrast to Western European countries where it took 75 years or longer to reduce total fertility rate from around five to the replacement level, in China's similar decline took less than two decades. As a result, in 2008, China's rate of population growth was only 5 per 1,000, down from over 14 per 1,000 in 1990 and 25 per 1,000 in 1970. Such a compressed process of demographic transition means that, compared with other countries in the world, China will have far less time to prepare its social and economic infrastructure to deal with the effects of a rapid aging population. So this is all happening at the same time that the looming housing crisis, which I'm gonna share a video, which is a very good one that shows what's going on because they're trying to censor the protests, but apparently not doing well enough because we have video of it. They are sending people to beat up the protesters so they go back and they are enacting their zero covid policy which alert which forces people not to be able to take public transportation not to leave their home which means they can't work they can't go to a store and buy stuff which then is worse for the economy so as much as it seems like china is our biggest threat as we look into the conspiracy that they're not again Again, this is another episode where we're finding out that the conspiracy isn't a conspiracy. In fact, I'm starting to think the word conspiracy and debunked and fact check are all created as an agenda to make you believe something that is not true. As it turns out, we think that that is a correct determination or conclusion to make. As you have heard on the 20 other episodes I've made, it seems like we have a common thread here. So now that's the population crisis, which is bad enough on its own. But what else is going on? In 2008, if you were in the U.S., you experienced a rough time until we bailed out the big banks, until we protected Wall Street but they love you, the government loves you. They care about the peasants more than anything else. They don't care, they they care if you lose your home and they do not care if Wall Street loses money. That's what their actions show. And guess what, if you say anything otherwise, you're a bigot and you suck and you're stupid and you need to just sit and follow the pendulum on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and all and just Listen to us, you did not see that. You see what we tell you to see. This is getting insane. And that's why I wanna be able to get to this one part that this is a crazy time to be alive. It is the dissolution of nation states. It is the dissolution of globalization. It is a massive meta concept, but it's happening and it's clearly happening. So let me play a short video on the housing crisis that is much larger than what happened in the U.S. And what happened in the U.S. shook the whole world. It put a recession globally. Now this is that on steroids. So let me get to this video. Pretty good reporting here. I think it's uh, a news network in India. Um, They've been doing a very good job. Uh, What's it called? It's uh, Wion, W-I-O-N. Um, so check this out, or if you're listening, take a listen, this is, this is good. So it's about eight minutes. We'll see how, if I play the whole thing or not, here we go. Chinese citizens are defaulting on loans in 86 cities. It says home buyers declare mortgage strike on 230 plus projects. A 9.2 trillion debt pile causes alarm in Beijing. Banks asked to disclose the true extent of bad debts. Is the next global financial crisis brewing in China? This is the China mortgage crisis. In 2008,
2: the global economy crashed. Our world changed forever. In America, Lehman Brothers had collapsed. The bank was holding a giant pile of bad debts, mostly bad housing loans. There was an international banking crisis. It gave the world a recession. 14 years later, another financial crisis is brewing in China, but the world knows very little about it. As we speak, a boycott campaign is underway in at least 86 Chinese cities. Thousands of home buyers have stopped paying their EMIs because they say they've not got their homes. They will not pay back their loans. China has asked its banks to produce a list of bad debts. There's a growing risk of more defaults. China's property sector is on shaky ground. Banks have a debt pile of more than $9 trillion. The money was lent out to the property sector, first leading the developer's defaulted. to now homeowners are willfully defaulting on their loans. Will a collapse of China's property sector start the next global financial crisis? Gravitas tonight will tell you how China could start
0: a financial showing mass, massive attacks on the people who are protesting, and the policemen are just watching, literally beating up the citizens for protesting, as the depositors lose their life savings. They're punishing the depositors for protesting.
2: China crushed by officials. Who were the protesters? People who had lost their life savings. China's banks are going through a major crisis, and these are people from the Henan province. In the month of April, four banks in Henan stopped withdrawals, meaning people who had deposited money in these banks could not withdraw. The people struggled for months. They protested at least thrice, and every time the Chinese state responded with a fierce crackdown. They tried their best to crush the protest, but they failed to silence the protesters. China's banking regulator has now relented. It will compensate these depositors in Henan. It's a massive climb down for the Chinese state and a win for the people. But our story does not end there. In fact, it just begins. The Henan banks are just the beginning of China's nightmare. There are many more hidden skeletons. Chinese banks have debt worth $9.2 trillion. Let me repeat that, debt worth trillion dollars this money was given out to the distressed property sector of china mostly to home buyers but now the money is not coming back the people have not got their homes so they've stopped paying their emis the scale of the problem is massive this is a mortgage crisis a mortgage revolt in china home buyers in more than 50 chinese cities are defaulting on their debts and they are doing it willingly Said this before, China's debt problem is like a cancer, and this cancer is now spreading through their economy. The repercussions could be grave, and the impact could be global. On Gravitas tonight, we'll bring you the full story. We'll tell you how the Chinese economy is staring at a collapse. we start with the mortgage boycott. Look at this headline China mortgage boycott data erased by censors as crisis spreads. The story broke today. And when Chinese censors swing into action, is often an indication that there is a big problem. These censors took down some documents. What was in the documents? Data about mortgage boycotts in the country. Information about the projects that are stalled. Images of letters by home buyers. These are the people who declared they will not be paying their EMIs anymore. China is trying to hide all of this data. So, how big is the problem? In one word, massive. We have estimates. Home buyers have stopped mortgage payments in at least 100 projects. Where are these projects? In more than 50 cities. Numbers from the leak data set suggest that the problem is much bigger. According to one report, the boycott is happening in as many as 86 cities. How many projects? More than 230. How many people have stopped paying EMIs in China? We don't have the exact numbers, but a Chinese news outlet has published a report. It has pictures of the leaked data set. Now, look at this. There are more than 80 entries on this list alone. 46,000 home buyers have suspended payments in 14 projects. 46,000. These projects are in central, southern, and eastern China. So people are refusing to pay EMIs in 80 cities. You can imagine the scale of the crisis. Why have they suspended payments? Because they've not got their homes, the ones that they bought. The developers have not finished those projects. Most of these projects have failed. These projects belong to the developers who recently defaulted. The biggest culprit is a name you would recognize Evergrande. It was the largest property developer in China. Now it has the largest debt pile in the world. 35% of the projects facing a revolt today belong to Evergrande. Home buyers have every right to be angry. If they're not getting their homes, why should they keep paying their EMIs? There will be more defaults. How much money are we talking about? At least $58 billion. That's the value of all the loans in delayed housing projects. How will China revive these projects? Its options are limited. China's property sector has become one of its biggest liabilities. Recent defaults have put banks such as the actual
0: This is crazy.
2: 72% drop. Chinese regulators are pressing the panic button. They've told banks to come clean. China wants to know how big the mortgage debt pile is. There are plans to infuse cash into the economy. Reports say Beijing could pump $1.1 trillion. This money will go into infrastructure projects. It will lift the construction sector, by extension, lift the Chinese economy, at least that's the hope. Chinese regulators say they will help the property sector too, but there's no plan yet. Housing projects going bust, borrowers unable to repay debt, and banks fearing a collapse. We've seen all of this before. This is exactly what happened in the year 2008, the subprime mortgage crisis in America. That's what it was. It gave the world a recession. Going by one estimate, over 2 million homes went through a foreclosure then. How much did American households lose? At least $17 trillion in all. What's happening in China is eerily similar to America's subprime crisis. The bigger problem is the fact that China is trying to hide all of it. The world needs to know about China's bad loans. In 2020, it hit the spread of the Wuhan virus and the world got a pandemic. In 2022, China is hiding another crisis that could be
0: next. Unbelievable. So, one more article to get to and then we can analyze all this. Population crisis, housing crisis, all happened at the same time. And Americans are threatened most by the rise of China, when in fact, what we're being told might be the exact opposite of what's really happening, which is the decline of China as a nation state. As promised, the last one, last article, great article on the crisis, called China's Debt Bomb Looks Ready to Explode written by a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College and non-resident senior fellow of the German Marshall Fund in the United States. Confidence in the safety of Chinese banks has been badly shaken by the failure of several small banks in Henan province in April this year. In terms of their assets of about 40 billion won, which is six billion US dollars, and the number of customers, roughly 400,000 of them, the shuttered world banks are minions in China's financial system. The implosion of these poorly supervised and likely corrupted written financial institutions should not be surprising. But how local authorities handled the fallout is shocking, even to the most jaded observers of China's political scene. Instead of compensating the depositors, who are entitled up to 500,000 won, according to government regulations, officials in Hainan have done everything imaginable to silence them. Hmm, what have we learned over the past couple of years on when anyone or any institution tries to silence you? What have we learned? That it's a good thing or that they're trying to suffocate opposition because they can't convince you that things are going well? Hmm, I don't know. Conspiracy? Perhaps. Likely not. They initially restricted the movement of the depositors by turning the COVID test code on their smartphones red, which effectively made it impossible for them to take public transportation or even drive their own cars. A public outcry meant to abandon this abusive tactic. But when several. gained access to their savings in the failed banks gathered on July 10th. 2022, two protests in front of the People's Bank Branch office in Zhengzhou, capital of Henan. local officials sent in a large number of thugs who viciously assaulted the depositors with uniformed police officers looking on. Ever since China began to binge on debt to fuel its growth in 2009, many have wondered how long the party could go on. To the chagrin of many bearish observers, predictions of a financial crisis have not panned out. This is a very important sentence I'm about to read. Very important sentence. Today, China's banking system is still standing despite a debt-to-GDP ratio of 264%. I will repeat... Today, China's banking system is still standing despite a debt-to-GDP ratio of 264%. When it's over 100%, it's bad. This is 264%. Perhaps because Beijing seems to be able to defy financial gravity, fewer people these days worry that its ballooning debt could unleash a systematic crisis. But there are many warning signs indicating that China may face a debt reckoning soon. Weak supervision, poor risk management, and corruption that likely drove the small rural banks in Henan into insolvency are systematic among the country's nearly 4,000 small and medium-sized banks with nearly $14 in assets. The most ominous warning light is clearly China's debt-ridden real estate sector. China Ever, Evergrande Group, the country's largest real estate developer, you may or may not have heard this, which has borrowed more than $300 billion, has already defaulted on its bonds. I don't think that's good, is it? Is that a conspiracy? If it's not good? Hmm, I don't know. They'll probably say that. More defaults seem likely because Chinese developers are on the hook for $13 billion in dollar-denominated bond payments in the second half of this year. China's debt-laden local governments are also facing grim prospects, declining income from land sales because of the crisis in the real estate sector and falling tax receipts are expected to cause a 6 trillion won shortfall, which is roughly $900 billion in local government revenues this year. Local government financing vehicles that have borrowed heavily from banks or issued bonds will have great difficulty servicing their debt. Large banks in China are in trouble as well. Now, this is really important. This is the last couple paragraphs. This is tying into the other episode we just did, and you'll see what I'm talking about in a second, or you'll hear what I'm talking about. They have lent tens of billions to poor countries as part of China's ambitious Belt and Road Initiative. A significant portion of their credit portfolio is likely to become non-performing as their borrowers are unable to service the debt due to the global economic downturn. And here's the last part, and this is what I meant by tying it all together. It comes full circle. It always does. Everything's interconnected. The most recent economic implosion and the collapse of the government of Sri Lanka will likely force their Chinese lenders, who own that debt, to write off a large portion of the loans. If big Chinese banks themselves face rising non-performing loans abroad, they will be less able to help bail out insolvent, small or medium sized banks at home. So in the Sri Lanka episode, we talked about how China is going to switch their reserve currency in that country to the wand as they you know, take over the global presence and that it shows that China is a big power. But it also shows that since Sri Lanka collapsed, they're not gonna be able to pay back that loan. So maybe you're not really holding that much power because you have to write it off. And then at the same time, your population is past the point of no return of replacement because of their one child policy. Has China self-destructed? Are we going to see the full dissolution of one of the most powerful countries in the world by 2030, which by the way, funny as it may seem, coincides with the New World Order, Great Reset, Klaus Schwab, 2030, clean energy, 2030, everything 2030, 2030, 2030. And now we're gonna see China implode by 2030? Now I know a lot of you think that this is a podcast on conspiracy theories when in fact all it is, is when we hear conspiracy theory, we do research and we have found out that they're not conspiracy theories at all, but in fact, likely truths. I want you to do the research on your own. Do your own research on the China population, find your own statistics. Go, you can go to the sources I'm providing in the notes, or you can do independent research. I want you to fact check what I'm saying. But I don't think after you do that, you're going to argue with me that I was wrong about the population, or I'm wrong about the housing crisis, or we're seeing the collapse of a massive nation state in the next decade that is going to ripple throughout the world, and it's going to hit soon, because not only are we in the midst of the population crisis, that housing bubble is going to collapse in the next few months, and it's going to be felt throughout the world, along with famine, along with the monkeypox pandemic, which was declared a world health emergency today, as predicted on June 9th on this podcast. In the information age, everything is available. None of this stuff is a secret. I'm not a wizard or Oracle. I'm just doing the research and then I'm putting it out there. And then all of a sudden, months later, it comes true and it makes me look like a genius when in fact, I'm not a genius. I mean, yeah, I'm really smart and extremely attractive and good looking and spunky and charismatic and hilarious but that's not neither here nor there. This is just about doing simple research and using my own mind and my own decision-making process to come to my own conclusions that feel right in my head and feel right in my heart. So I'm gonna end with this because this sheds light on what is happening. This has to do, this is a little off topic, but I really wanted to get to this. And if you're listening at this point, or you're watching at this point, you're going to understand why. This has to do with the fall of an empire, specifically Rome, and how that is exactly what we're going through right now. And why you're not hearing this stuff on the mainstream media, because it's bad for business. This is from the sovereign individual, which if you do not read, that's not smart. The waning of the modern world. In our view, you are witnessing nothing less than the waning of the modern age. It is a development driven driven by a ruthless but hidden logic. More than we commonly understand, more than CNN and the newspapers tell us, the next millennium will no longer be, quote, modern. We say this not to imply that you face a savage or backward future, although that is possible, but to emphasize that the stage of history now Opening will be qualitatively different from that into which you were born. Something new is coming. Just as farming societies differed in kind of from hunting and gathering bands and industrial societies differed radically from feudal or human agricultural systems, so the new world to come will mark a radical departure from anything seen before. And this was written in 97, so it says the new millennium, but it was 20 years off. In the new millennium, economic and political life will no longer be organized on a gigantic scale under the domination of the nation state as it was during the modern centuries. The civilization that brought you world war, the assembly line, social security, income tax, deodorant, which isn't very good for you, by the way. And the toaster oven is dying. Deodorant and the toaster oven may survive. The others won't. Like an ancient and once mighty man, the nation state has a future numbered in years and days and no longer in centuries and decades. See how this ties full circle into what's happening in China and the US? Governments have already lost much of their power to regulate and compel. The collapse of communism marked the end of a long cycle of five centuries during which magnitude of power overwhelmed efficiency in the organization of government. It was a time when the returns to violence were high and rising. They no longer are. A phase transition of world historic dimensions has already begun. Indeed, the future Gibbon who chronicles the decline and fall of the once modern age in the next millennium may declare that it had already ended by the time you read this book. Looking back, he might say, as we do, that it ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 or with the death of the Soviet Union in 1991. Either day could come to stand as a defining event in the evolution of civilization, the end of what we now know as the modern age. The fourth stage of human human development is coming, and perhaps its least predictable feature is the new name under which it will be known. Call it postmodern, call it the cyber society, or call it like we do on this pod, the information age or make up your own name. No one knows what conceptual glue will stick a nickname to the next phase of history. Will you not even know that the 500 year stretch of history just ending will continue to be thought of as modern? If future historians know anything about word uh, derivations or whatever deviations, it will not be. A more descriptive title might be the age of the state or the age of violence. But such a name would fall outside the temporal spectrum that currently defines the epochs of history modern according to oxford english dictionary which is changing now because they're changing the definition of like man and woman to confuse everybody on purpose uh means pertaining to the present and recent times as distinguished from the remote past in historical use commonly applied in contradiction to ancient and medieval to the time subsequent to the middle ages western people consciously thought of themselves as modern only when they came to understand that the middle medieval period was over before 1500. No one had ever thought of the feudal centuries as a middle period in Western civilization. The reason is obvious upon reflection before an age can reasonably be seen as sandwiched in the quote middle of two other historic epochs. It must have already come to an end. Those living during the feudal centuries could not have imagined themselves as living in a halfway house between and uh, antiquity and modern civilization until it dawned on them not just that the medieval period was over, but also that medieval civilization differed dramatically from that of the dark ages or antiquity. Human cultures have blind spots. We have no vocabulary to describe paradigm changes in the largest boundaries of life, especially those happening around us. Notwithstanding the many dr- many dramatic changes that have unfolded since the time of Moses. Only a few heretics have bothered to think about the transitions from one phase of civilization to another actually unfold. How are they triggered? What do they have in common? What patterns can help you tell when they begin and when they are over? When will Great Britain or the United States come to an end? These are questions for which you would be hard pressed to find conventional answers. And then I want to get into exactly why it takes so long for us to recognize that it's the dissolution of the the nation state, even though it's going on and will go on for many years. But we don't recognize it for possibly centuries where people didn't recognize Rome uh, falling until centuries later. And I'm going to read that part right now because it's super interesting and we'll end on this. The taboo on foresight. To see outside an existing system is like being a stagehand trying to force a dialogue with a character in play. It breaches a convention that helps keep the system functioning. Every social order incorporates among its key taboos the notion that people living in it should not think about how it will end and what rules may prevail in the new system that takes its place. Implicitly, Whatever system exists is the last or the only system that will ever exist. Not that this is so uh, baldly stated. Few who have ever read a history book would find such an assumption realistic if it was articulated. Nonetheless, that is the convention that rules the world. Every social system, however, strongly or weakly it clings to power, pretends that its rules will never be superseded. They are the last word, or perhaps the only word. Primitives assume that theirs is the only possible way of organizing life. More economically complicated systems that incorporate a sense of history usually place themselves at its apex, whether they are Chinese Mandarins in the court of the emperor, the Marxist nomenclatura in Stalin's Kremlin, or members of the House of Representatives in Washington. The powers that be either imagine no history at all or place themselves at the pinnacle of history in a superior position compared to everyone who came before and the vanguard of anything to come. This is true for practical reasons. The more apparent it is that a system is nearing an end, the more reluctant people will be to adhere its laws. Any social organization will therefore tend to discourage or play down analysis of that anticipate its demise. Sound familiar? This alone helps ensure that history's great transitions are seldom spotted as they happen. If you know nothing else about the future, you can rest assured that dramatic changes will be neither welcomed nor advertised by conventional thinkers. You cannot depend upon conventional information sources to give you an objective, and timely warning about how the world is changing and why. If you wish to understand the great transition now underway, you have little choice but to figure it out yourself, like we're doing on this podcast. Beyond the obvious, this is the last part, and this will sound, this will make a lot of sense of why you're finding out the truth on this ridiculous podcast and not through conventional outlets. Beyond the obvious. This means looking beyond the obvious. The record shows that even transitions that are undeniably real in retrospect may not be acknowledged for decades or even centuries after they happened. Consider the fall of Rome. It was probably the most important historic development in the first millennium of the Christian era. Yet long after Rome's demise, the fiction that it survived was held out to public view, like Lenin's embalmed corpse no one who depended upon the pretenses of officials for his understanding of the quote news would have learned that rome had fallen till long after that information ceased to matter the reason was not merely the inadequacy of communications in the ancient world the outcome would have been much the same had cnn miraculously been in business running its videotape in september of 476. that is when the last Roman Emperor in the West, Romulus Augustulus, was captured in Ravenna and forcibly retired to a villa in Campania on a pension. Even if Wolf Blitzer had been there with many camps recording the news in 476, it is unlikely that he or anyone else would have dared to characterize those events as marking the end of the Roman Empire. That, of course, is exactly what latter historians said happened. CNN editors probably would not have approved a headline story saying, quote, Rome fell this evening. The powers that be denied that Rome had fallen. Peddlers of, quote, news seldom are partisans of controversy. Oh, wow, we never. Yeah, not. I'm sure you guys don't know that. Yeah, that, that's a that must be a. a That must be a conspiracy. Peddlers of quote news seldom are partisans of controversy in ways that would undermine their own profits. That they may be partisan. They may even be outrageously so, which we have learned in the past couple of years. But they seldom report conclusions that would convince subscribers to cancel their subscriptions and head for the hills, which is why few would have reported the fall of Rome, even if it had been technologically possible. Experts would have come forth to say that it was ridiculous to speak of Rome falling. To have said otherwise would have been bad for business and perhaps bad for the health of those doing the reporting. The powers in the late 5th century Rome were barbarians, and they denied that Rome had fallen. But it was not merely a case of authorities saying, quote, don't report this or we will kill you, close quote. Part of the problem was that Rome was already so degenerate by the later decades of the 5th century that its, quote, fall genuinely eluded the notice of most people who lived through it. In fact, it was a generation later before Count Marcellinus first suggested that, quote, the Western Roman Empire perished with this Augustulus. Many more decades passed, perhaps centuries, before there was a common acknowledgement that the Roman Empire in the West no longer existed. Certainly, Charlemagne believed that he was a legitimate Roman Empire in the year 800. The point is not that Charlemagne and all who thought in conventional terms about the Roman Empire after 476 were fools. To the contrary. The characterization of social developments is frequently ambiguous. When the power of predominant institutions is brought into the bargain to reinforce a conventional conclusion, even one based largely on pretense, only someone of strong character and strong opinions would dare contradict it. That's you, by the way. If you try to put yourself in the position of a Roman of the late fifth century, it is easy to imagine how tempting it would have been to conclude that nothing had changed. That certainly was the optimistic conclusion. To have thought otherwise might have been frightening. And why come to a frightening conclusion when a reassuring one was at hand? After all, a case would have been made that business would continue as usual. It had in the past. The Roman army and particularly the frontier garrisons had been barbarized for centuries. By the third century, it had become regular practice for the army to proclaim a new emperor. By the fourth century, even officers were Germanized and frequently illiterate. There had been many violent overthrows of emperors before Romulus Augustus, Augustulus, but was removed from the throne. His departure might have seemed no different to his contemporaries than many other upheavals in a chaotic time, and he was sent packing with a pension the very fact that he received a pension, even for a brief period before he was murdered, was a reassurance that the system survived. To an optimist, Odoacer, who deposed Romulus Augustulus, reunified rather than destroyed the empire. A son of Attila's sidekicked, Eticon, Odoacer was cl- a clever man. He did not proclaim himself emperor. Instead, he convened the Senate and prevailed upon its two suggestible members that they offer the emperorship and thus sovereignty over the whole empire to Zeno, the Eastern emperor in a faraway Bezitai. Odoacer was merely to be Zeno's patriosis to govern Italy. As Will Durant wrote in The Story of Civilization, these changes did not appear to be the fall of Rome, but merely negligible shifts, sorry, on the surface of the national scene. When Rome fell, Odoacer said that Rome endured. He, along with almost everyone else, was keen to pretend that nothing had changed. They knew that the glory that was Rome was far better than the barbarism that was taking its place. Even the barbarians' thoughts. W. Prevent Orton wrote, in the shorter Cambridge medieval history, The end of the fifth century when, quote, the emperors had been replaced by barbaric German kings was a time of persistent make-believe. People, we're in that time right now, but we don't recognize it. We're seeing the dissolution of the nation state. We're seeing the dissolution of China happening faster. We're seeing the end of globalization Which massively changes how things are built, manufactured, created, sold, sent, shipped, how countries do business with one another. This is massive. But the reason we don't want to see it is because it's scary. It's really scary. Everything that you have known is about to be uprooted and changed. Is it going to get worse? No, not necessarily. I think it's going to get better. But it's going to be different. And just as people didn't recognize the fall of Rome when Rome actually fell for centuries, how long is it going to take to realize that the nation states are falling? And I know we all feel the energy in the air that something is going on that isn't right these past couple years. And it's such a meta feeling that everyone in this world has it. And I know they do. Everyone I talk to says they, they feel it too. It's society evolving and changing just like it always has throughout all of history. This is nothing new. It just hasn't happened in your lifetime, but that doesn't mean it hasn't happened over and over and over again in history because it has. So when they say things are once in a generation, but yet you haven't experienced it in your generation doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So, Is it a bad thing that the status quo isn't gonna be the status quo anymore? No, absolutely not. But do we need to prepare for a different type of sovereignty in the future? Perhaps individual sovereignty as opposed to nation state sovereignty because we're seeing the dissolution of nation states? I think so. And the sooner we understand what's happening and how all these parts of the machine relate to one another and affect us and our loved ones and our family, the better we can prepare for a much better future. That isn't a bad thing, it's just different. So I will end with this. It's more important now than ever to do your own research to not take things at face value that say debunk, that say fact check, that say conspiracy, Those are conventional outlets that are trying to keep a certain narrative to hold their own power for the long term. That will fail. And now you can verify and find out the truth with anything by just going on the internet and doing your own research just like I do on this podcast. I just share my findings with you and then I always say, Go do the research on your own. Go look at the resources in the show notes, or go find your own sources and either quote unquote debunk it or verify it I'm not here to spew false narratives. I have no incentive I'm not paid by big pharma I'm not paid by old establishment corporations that have been paying for c n n and Fox News and all this stuff for all these years. Uh-uh. I'm an independent media, I'm here for humanity. That is the truth. And we're going to see these smaller communities pop up that you willingly join and be a part of. And that's a good thing because the closer decisions are to you, the better decisions that can be made for you. The further away or more broad brushed a decision is for an entire massive population, probably the worst decision it will be for a high percentage of those people. It doesn't need to be that way anymore, but the conventional news outlets are going to do everything they can to keep their business model and their power because without it, they do not have a business and it's over for them. So do your own due diligence and be weary and highly skeptical Of the typical news outlets that you get your information from because more likely than not, it's in their own self-interest to tell you something as opposed to what is best for you. And I know that you believe in your heart of hearts that the government and CNN and MSNBC and Fox News love you more than life itself. And they want you to be so successful and to achieve all your goals, even if they don't have to make money and they just want to give back to the people because they love you and they want you to be happy and fulfilled. I know that's what the narrative is, but let me give you the truth. They don't care about you. They care about themselves as they should. That's their fiduciary responsibility to their investors and to a business, that is what they should care about. And that's okay, but don't get it twisted that they're doing it for the best interest of what's good for you and your family. You have to take initiative and do that on your own. And that's what I'm doing and I'm trying to give you a head start by sharing the truth. So you make your own determinations on all this stuff, but um be careful where you get your information. And I guess um just an old quote cuz I always reference it every now and then like Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. You could trust but always verify. The truth is out there and it's out there for everybody. So I hope this helps. And thank you everyone for listening. Much appreciated. I love you all.